It's Pip Podcast Time. Today, Robin is in conversation with Damon Gamow, actor, filmmaker and director of the new film, 2040. The film is a hopeful vision for the future, a future in which humanity comes together to solve the crisis of climate change. Damon Gamow is an eloquent and inspiring advocate in a world that so desperately needs change. We invite you to join us in this conversation. Welcome to the PIP podcast. Today I'm speaking with Damon Gamow, creator of the feature film 2040. Damon has not only created an optimistic and inspiring film focusing on a positive future and solutions to our climate problems, but he has also created a movement of people around the film. So thanks for taking the time today to talk with me, Damon. My pleasure. Now, for those who haven't seen the film, could you give us a description of what the film is about and what it is? Yeah, so it's a, a letter, like a visual letter to my daughter showing her what the world could look like in 2040 if we put into practice the best solutions that are available today. So I call it an exercise in fact-based dreaming and it basically just tries to find the best scalable practical um, solutions with lots of cascading benefits for our environment and then I sort of show what they would look like if they were brought more into the mainstream uh, so it's a bit of a visioning piece a bit of a mm. exercise in imagination and also an antidote to I guess the pretty overwhelmingly nihilistic narrative that we get and also certainly in our Hollywood films the vision of the future which is usually um, pretty dystopian. So, yeah, there are lots of films out there that are kind of focusing on the climate crisis, not just films, but generally in the media. Um, and, you know, kind of exposing those climactic problems in an often shocking way to try and get people to wake up and take action. So mm. why did you choose the approach that you did? Well, I think when you talk to a lot of psychologists or even environmental psychologists that um, for a lot of people that, that technique we've used so much now that we're bombarding, we're really overwhelming people with that um, particular narrative. And, and for a lot of people, it does shut them down and actually create paralysis. So it actually activates part of our brains that once activated, shut down the parts where we think creatively and we problem solve. So um, it can work to a degree, but I think um, what we're finding is people are much more inclined to get involved when there's uh, hope, when there's solutions, when there's inspiration, when we're showing what other people are doing, showing mm. examples that it can be done. Uh, that's also a way to bring people along for the ride. And I think especially at the moment, we're seeing people retreat into fear. And when they retreat mm. into fear, they vote for more authoritarian leaders. They support walls being built. They get really mm. scared. So I think more than ever, it's important to show them what life can look like on the other side of this crisis and show how communities can be strengthened, how communities can have more happiness with less stuff and how huge millions of jobs can be created by regenerating landscapes or decentralising energy, whatever it might be, that these mm. things that we have available can actually empower us and uh, create a better society as opposed to um, making us deprive things and give up things and be worse off. Mm. Totally. So since having created the film, what have you found has been the most... Uh, inspiring part action that you've talked about so like what's created the most effect or excitement among people have you found um 
Oh, look, it's it's tough to say. We've we've really had a phenomenal response to a lot of the solutions. Probably seaweed, I guess, because it's quite new to people and it's quite um simple in its premise. It's basically that uh, we have a lot of our seaweeds are dying around the world because the oceans uh, are absorbing so much of the excess heat from global warming. So they're making the oceans warmer and that's killing off a lot of the kelp. So um, we've just sort of been talking to lots of different professors and one in particular uh, in Massachusetts about he's developed a system that regenerates the kelp by bringing cooler nutrient water laden from deeper in the ocean and sort of circulating it up to the top of, uh, top of layers of the ocean. And that's actually allowing the seaweeds to grow again. And they grow incredibly quickly. They can grow sort of half a metre a day and up to 50 metres long, which means they're sequestering huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. But they're also drawing carbon dioxide out of the water. They're providing a fish uh, a habitat for fish to lay their eggs again. And the seaweed itself can be used for a range of purposes, from biofuels to plastics um, to fertilisers. Um, but also, the I guess the sequestering ability means that we can harvest the seaweed, and once it sinks below a thousand metres in the water, the weight of the water actually can store it on the ocean floor as carbon for potentially millennia. So, it's a really exciting uh, solution that has no vested interests yet. There's no sort of political um, blocks to it. It's just very clean and, and ready to scale up. So, um, we've had a you know quite a phenomenal response to that. So much so that we did a crowdfund to raise, to build the first seaweed platform in Australia. And we reached that funding goal of 600,000 and we're gonna build that uh, starting early next year. I'm actually going down next week to do the first dive for the test site. And then we've, we've been contacted by Tim Flannery and some other people and, and um, we're gonna help them put on the first seaweed symposium early next year, which brings together all the best uh, ocean experts, engineers, impact investors all together for a few days to work out how quickly we can scale this up and sort of look at all the potential problems and all the things that might be barriers. Um, but that's, again, really exciting considering that sort of came about from a film and raising awareness and people reaching out to us to see how they can um, uh, really upscale this solution. Mm, that's great. Yeah, because we did an article about that a couple of years ago because um, it's marine permaculture and we're a permaculture magazine. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, it was just this sort of idea then. So it's been – it was exciting to see it mentioned in the film and then to be following that since the film that it's actually – wow, it's just happening and it's happening – is it off King Island? Is that right? Yeah, it's in Storm Bay, um, so just off Bruny Island in Tassie. Oh, Island. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I've just been in the UK for the last five weeks releasing the film and we've just met up with another project there, a woman named Angela, another scientist and marine biologist. And so we're helping them as well launch a version um, in Sussex as well. There's just so much awareness about seaweed at the moment. Um, and Brian, mm -hmm. who's in the film, has uh, already done a, a quite a large-scale test platform. He's about to launch in the Philippines. He's done one in Bali. So... There's some really interesting and exciting versions of that uh, technology mm. starting to, to appear. And, you know, it makes sense because we'd have all this ocean that we could potentially re regenerate instead of, you know, using the land more and more and clearing forests and whatnot. We, um, we've got this opportunity to really start growing um, sea vegetables and seaweed itself and, and creating huge food sources that which can provide a great security, especially as our land crops get more and more damaged as heats as the temperature rises. I think we could mitigate a lot of the stresses that might come from climate refugees if we've got sort of alternative food sources already in place. Mm. And I think that's what these um, these decentralised sort of seaweed community uh, fish farm, I mean, it's just a fantastic, I mean, I should be careful using the word farm, but at least it provides this mm. wonderful um, habitat yeah. for the fish, um, a natural habitat that, again, provides a, a, a protein source, but you're also getting food from the seaweed itself. So I think that's why people are excited about it because yeah. there's just so benefits just a win-win really yeah 
And it can also be used in fish farming to actually take up all the nutrients from the fish waste and actually soak that up and grow seaweed and create seaweed that way. So Yeah, that's right. So some of the, the, the seaweed absorbs some of those nitrates as it's growing, which can clean the water. And I think there's even talk about doing experiments in places like the mouth of the Ganges River, which obviously is just so polluted and the water's really struggling there that the, mm. the water can the seaweed can help oxygen oxygenate the water again and take take a lot of those chemicals out, which, again, um, just sort of shows that we have all the solutions we need and, and often nature provides the solutions that we need at that moment. Mm. Yeah, and I guess what's so great is that, like, those solutions have been there, but it takes something like your film <laughs> to, you know, get people to get involved and take action. And Yeah, yeah that was the point of the film, I guess, trying to just um, bring into the mainstream some of these things and, highlight some of these people you know they have been pioneers for years but they just mm. have been lurking in the shadows unfortunately and i think as we get more and more desperate for solutions you know that some of these more radical ideas can start to become common sense and i think we're seeing that a lot now that people are really starting to look at um what a new system might look look like or how do we empower our communities what a new you know, participatory democracy models what are the more sharing economy models these things that have been fringe for so long are suddenly being talked about in a very serious way um, mm. because we all acknowledge that we've reached that, we're at that fork in the road where if we keep doing what we're doing, well, we sort of know where that's going to head. So we need to start looking for um, other more viable options and solutions that are going to benefit us and the planet. Mm. So you talk about um, that was the aim of the film. So what, what was your overall aim? Like what made you decide to create a film about this? What inspired you? Uh, well, obviously having a daughter, I've got two daughters now, but that was a huge factor and also just found myself not engaging with the topic and I care about it, but I just switch off halfway through an article because there's only so much of that you can take. And, you know, as you know, you can feel very helpless around this issue because it's such a, you know, what we're, what we're talking about is a systemic shift and how do you do that as one person? So it's very easy to disengage and I found myself disengaging, but the more I started talking to scientists about solutions and doing research, I just felt myself light up again and I felt really motivated and felt, you know, mm. found myself bounding out of bed and I thought, well, I wonder if this, if this applies to lots of other people out there. So that, that was a huge reason was just, just to bring up that solutions narrative, which I think has been sorely lacking. It's not to say we don't need to sound the alarm bell. Like we are absolutely at a crisis point in this and, and mm. it's interesting being in the UK for the last five weeks, there's a lot more of a nihilistic conversation going on there, which was tough to deal with sometimes. A lot of professors and academics that really do think that we're in serious, serious trouble and, and, and maybe on the verge of a collapse imminently, and, and that was kind of hard to take, but they were also looking at mm. it from a really reductionist scientific perspective, which mm. is really valid, but I think sometimes that rules out all the magic and the ingenuity and the creativity yeah, and the, totally. the magic that we possess as humans when, when we are backs against the wall. So, um, yeah, it was really an experiment in a lot of ways around climate communication to see if we could bring more people in by using this narrative and then what what would happen if we married the solutions directly to action points where people could get involved, whether it's volunteering their time or their money, just to see if that was going to be a way that might work. And, and obviously, just to see the extraordinary response we've had to those actions, I think um, there are lessons, you know, especially for us moving forward, that we want to sort of amplify this at a global level and uh, I'm doing a series at the moment that's going to have a much larger exposure uh, internationally. And again, we want to do the same um, technique that really matches the solutions we show in that series to ways that people can get involved. Because as you know, people are ready to help. They just don't know what to do. And mm. they want to tr 
transmute all that anxiety and frustration they have at our lack of leadership and they want to find a way to roll their sleeves up and get on with it. So we just need to make sure we're providing entry points for people at a variety of levels. Not everyone wants to go and glue their hands to a stovey pole. So we've got to make sure that we've got other ways that can get involved yeah. so they don't think that that's the only way they can help. Um, and yeah. I think uh, you know, we just need to provide those because people don't know what to do. Mm. And there are loads of ways. Like it's not all about growing your own food necessarily, although that's something we talk about a lot. But yeah, some people don't want to go in the garden. But you know, they can do amazing things in some other way by helping here or volunteering or giving some money or yeah. Yes. So that, that and helps. I think, yeah, we probably fall into a trap there of being too prescriptive. I think we've, yeah. you know, we probably say, oh, I just eat less meat and ride your bike to work and, you know, maybe buy an electric car. But as you said, not everyone's going to resonate with that. So I think we're smarter to really try and be more specific about giving people things that resonate with them in particular and what their passion is, because then they're more likely to see it through and stick to it uh, as opposed to being told what to do. So that's really what we try to do with our impact campaign. People can go to our website and, and activate their own climate plan. And we ask them some questions about the type of person they are and what they're passionate about, how much time they have, if they want to help out financially. And then we sort of serve them up six or seven things that relate to the questions they've answered. So, uh, again, we're just seeing a lot more follow through by using that technique that people are really staying engaged with this topic because they care about the thing that they've um, mm. chosen to take action on. Yeah. So how many people have you had sign up since the movie? Oh, look, it's hard to quantify exactly. I think we're up to about 20,000 activations of the plan itself. Um, oh, and it's nice. translated into obviously the 600,000 for the Seaweed platform. We've had we equity crowdfunded just under a million dollars for the decentralised energy, the microgrid, to bring that oh, to yeah. an Australian company. We've had 10,000 teachers download our curriculum materials. Um, mm. We've had about 500 farmers switch to Regen and raised almost 50 grand, I think, oh. to, to help those farmers transition. Is There's that about through Carbonate? Carbonate, yep. There's yeah. about $12,000 that have been given to sponsor, like mentor a girl online for girls' education. Um, mm. About 12,000 trees have been planted just through people using the Ecosia search engine. So, you know, that's all within five months since the release. Mm. So, um, you know, there's a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's very validating that, you know, the, the, yeah. the message is, you know, has reached the people we want. And I, you know, it's more, you know, the feedback I get from kids is the bit that gets me. I mean, I, I kids mm. just love the film and, and I get stopped quite a lot from children that have seen it. And um, again, just did a tour of the UK and did a ton of school visits and just to see their response. It's like a rock concert after they've seen it because all <laughs> they're getting taught is just how bad things are and then if they don't yeah. change then this is going to be dead and this species is going to be extinct yep. and you know they're crying out for some sort of solutions um yeah. you know and i guess we've got to be careful not to sort of give them a, a sense of false hope but i think we, we work really hard on this film to make sure that that was a grounded hope then that everything yeah. we show is already happening and it's existing and yeah. it's practical Possible. um because i think there is a danger and it would have been a really bad parenting exercise on my part if i just said to my daughter hey 2040 is going to be like this is going to be great and it's all fine i i you know yeah. i didn't do that either so or the opposite too it's, yeah. yeah i wanted to talk to you about that like um that idea of you know how do we talk to our children about this because if mm. we you know if we start talking about the climate crisis and extinction and using these yep. strong words it, it can be quite depressing and for young kids they need to be able to experience their youth and have some innocence and but yeah. you know, I also know what's happening. So, yeah, so the approach you've taken is just to, 
give them some positive things that they can do in their own world. Yeah, and it's to say to not shy away from the reality um, without sort of being too doomsday, but say, yep, you know, we are in trouble. There's definitely things going on and that the, the planet's changing and we are hurting some environments and, and ecosystems. But what's wonderful is that there are millions, if not billions of people that care about this planet and they're starting mm. to look at solutions and there's great people doing wonderful things and they're every day discovering things that can actually turn this mess around. So uh, I think that's what I talk to my my daughter about and and I believe that now I've seen it over the last four Mm. years and I I didn't know that four years ago but I have a very very much a renewed sense of hope and faith in in what we can achieve because I've just you know there's extraordinary stories out there of you know apart from Mm. the ones we've shown but you know in one day there's you know the people of Ethiopia planted 350 million trees in one day I mean that's what humans are capable of Um, and, and imagine sort of 50 countries did that all on the same day so yeah. You know, we should just never underestimate what we're capable of. And, and, you know, we do have a habit of waiting to the last minute to act, which is, yeah. you know, just how we're built. But I think um, it's important for our kids to know that there are lots of people that care and they are really working feverishly at trying to turn things around mm-hmm. and, you know, just show them those stories without showing away from the reality. I think we've just got to encourage them. And, and you know, what we've seen is that kids want to get involved with that. Suddenly they want to do engineering, learn about seaweed. We've had kids making their own mini microgrid models out of small houses and they link them up with copper wire and make little mini solar panels. And this is something that they're passionate about. They didn't know that that existed before. So who knows what that might lead to in terms of their own development and their career path. And this mm-hmm. only happens by bringing those solutions to light and inspiring them by these things that can help um, help the planet. So was it particularly focused, were you thinking of kids when you made it? Or it's obviously for adults and kids, but... Yeah, I mean, it was it was very family oriented. Like the sugar film that I made before that, we we just saw such a great response from families, and this was the same. It was like I wanted the whole family to be able to sit and watch it, and yeah. probably steered it a little bit more to kids because they were the ones that were feeling really overwhelmed by this, and there was just mm. nothing out there that wasn't really just dystopian and heavy handed. And I thought there's just no entry point for children here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, yes, a bent towards children, but you know, still for adults and, and thankfully, you know, adults have really been enjoying it as well. But um, yeah, I think just making that, ex- what can be complicated information, trying to make it accessible and fun and light uh, and distill some, you know, really scientific stuff and just try and present it in different analogies and make it palatable for people. Uh, mm. I think that's kind of, that's that's been the, the best success of the film is that people have sort of come away thinking, well, I sort of thought I understood this, but I didn't until I saw the film. I really see it in a different light now and understand how deeply connected we are to our environment and to the soils and the seas. And I think um, a lot of people in the environmental movement maybe take that for granted sometimes that, that, that we do need to be a bit simpler with our messaging and we need to be careful about taking out of that scientific realm because most people don't respond to words like anthropogenic or negative emissions or two degrees warming. No one really knows what that means. And so we've got to be very careful and a bit more... Um, just a bit more wary about how we communicate this and and make sure we talk about it at a human level, I think. Mm. Yeah, well, that's definitely what we do in the magazine. It's always keeping it positive and, Mm. yeah, offering solutions that people can read it and go, oh, cool, yep, I could do that. And it might not, you know, because that's the thing, if you're trying to, if you're focusing on the global problem, you just feel like you can't do anything on that level. Whereas you can do something on the local level, on the small level. And then that yeah. does, if enough of us do that, it has that impact on a bigger level. Yeah, what I like about that is that, 
you know, even whether you're sort of like a doomsday prepper or whether you're, you believe in a better, brighter future, the solutions are almost similar. Like we need to localise our food and decentralise the food system anyway. So even if we're going to do it as a, as a way of mitigating and protecting our own communities, great. But we also need to do it anyway to lower emissions and, and empower our communities. So I just think there's so many solutions out there that just we should do anyway. Um, yeah. And food is, you know, as you know, is one of the most important and I think is plays one of the biggest potentials in, 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 in sort of leading this sort of massive social change and movement. I think it can come through food. And once we really make that connection between the soil health and the quality of our food and where it comes from and how much travel it gets to us, I think then, you know, things will start to change very quickly. And I, you know, I've even seen some technologies that are going to dramatically change that over in the next couple of years of being able to really track supply chains, you know, the quality of the soil, uh, that the animals came from or vegetables came from, uh, any vaccines or hormones that the animals were using. I mean, there's countries like Taiwan that are already doing that so that you can scan mm. the barcode and you know exactly the quality of that food yeah. that you're getting. So that's going to just hold a lot more companies accountable. Yeah, so that there's a test of it already in Taiwan and there's one around yeah. fishing that's just been through WWF. They've released it in Australia and you can sort of track the supply chain of where the fish has come from. Mm. Um, but that's only going to get more and more detailed. Um, so it'll be as simple as scanning your phone. And again, suddenly these these companies are going to have to be very accountable for um, for where mm. they're getting their food from and, and how they're growing their food. Mm. Which will give those that are doing the right thing a bit more of an opportunity to be seen in the marketplace. and oh, I think so. On what they're doing. Yeah, and, and, and that is, I guess, where there, there is a bit of hope that you know, that, that actions from the ground up do matter. And, and I've um, been privy to some really interesting conversations. And one of them recently was with the CEO of Maersk, which is the big shipping company. And they're the biggest shipping company in the world or one of in terms of transport. And they've got a huge carbon footprint and they've pledged to go zero emissions by the middle of the century. And it's because um, they can't get workers out of universities in Europe coming through. They're saying, why would we work for you when you're destroying our yeah. future? Unless you change your ways, we're not interested. So they've actually yeah. changed their entire business model purely to get people to work for them. So yeah, right. um, that's what we're capable of when enough of us yeah. put that pressure on. This is what impact it can have. And I think we just really need to remember that and hold on to that, especially mm. in these difficult times at the moment. Yeah, it just takes that you to make that choice in your own life to say no that's to right. something. That, well, that's right. If everyone says no, then no one's going to buy it or support it or whatever it is. Yeah. So, um, and, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say that that sometimes gets caught up in an argument about, you know, um, small individual change versus larger change. And I think it's important to acknowledge that both of them need to happen and, and the individual change is about us sending social cues and norms to each other. We're, we're such social animals that it's amazing how quickly we respond when someone starts changing their behaviour. Um, it does challenge us and there's really interesting studies around, you know, people putting solar panels on their roof that the chances of the neighbour or the odds of the neighbour putting the solar on goes up exponentially because that mm. sort of social cue has been sent and it's the same with keep cups. But it's the same even we'll get with, you know, organic foods or quality foods that once we start establishing these new norms of what we think are acceptable in society, then things can shift really quickly. Mm. So you've, you sort of had a few main areas that you looked at in the film. How did you decide on those? Would you want to tell us first what those main mm. areas were that you looked at? Uh, well, the key things were energy, transport, agriculture, oceans, and then sort of economy or resource use. And really it came down to 
Well, the short answer is that they, were, they had to have cascading benefits. So even if climate change wasn't happening, we'd want to do all of these things anyway. We want to regenerate our soils because of the benefits to water retention and, and food quality. We need to help our oceans because the fish populations are, are dangerously overfished. Uh, we need to decentralise our energy because that hierarchical top-down structure isn't working anymore. We need to empower girls and women um, anyway. What a great thing to do, but then it has a mm. bonus benefit. So uh, that was a key element, but also it was trying to find... I mean, basically, we've developed this system that's based on rivalry and competition, and that's the thing that's destroying us. And unfortunately, as a civilization, as humans, we don't have a very good track record. Like, we've never survived as a civilization, whether it's the Romans or the Mesopotamians or Sumerians. We've sort of just not looked after our resources and we've collapsed. And I think that all of us would understand that we're sort of hovering somewhere near that fork in the road now. So we've got to make a decision. If we keep this system the way it is, it's just, it's a deep design flaw that, that not only pushes up the people that have the more sort of tendencies to be towards sociopathy and, and um, doesn't have the, the greater good in mind, that's a problem with this system. We reward that kind of behaviour, but also that we've just knocked ourselves out of any sort of balance with nature because we've just kept advancing and developing technologies that just make us far superior to our ecosystems, and that's just destroying us. So the solutions we looked for really sort of had to have more of a symbiotic or interconnected relationship with mm. uh, the planet, with the earth, with the soils, with the communities, just a, a fundamental way of rethinking about how we interact with the planet mm. and, and, and to do it in a subtle way that didn't sort of feel too esoteric or freak people out, but just sort of had to feel very natural and mm. simple and make sense and be beneficial to a lot more people and animals than than the solutions that we're that you know, there are other solutions out there that are very much more mechanistic, um, top-down structure, building giant carbon sucking machines on the edge of our cities. Look, we might need those in some capacity down the track, but I think to think that we could just band-aid over this system as it is and yeah, be fine totally. is, just, is just ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, in a way, this isn't really about climate change. I mean, climate change is just one facet of a system mm. that's broken, you know, and, and you know that. We're destroying our soils, we're destroying our ecosystems, we're destroying our oceans. It all leads to climate change, but I don't think even if we, you know, lower our carbon emissions, you know, and we keep extracting at the rate we are, we're still going to be doomed. So I think mm. it's really important to actually look at this in a much more holistic perspective and look at how our actions and our system is destroying so many of the things we value. And we just don't measure them. That's the problem. We, we only measure them mm. through a financial lens. So if they're invisible, then we're just not aware of the damage. So it's a big task. There's no doubt about it. But I just wanted the film to be a bit of an entry point for people to some of these mm. concepts and hope that they'll do a deeper dive uh, onto things that they particularly resonated with. Uh, and I think that's what's happened. We, this is a teaser in a way. It's a Trojan horse in a lot of ways, the film. It's only 90 minutes, mm -hmm. but it's just that little sort of, you know, little taste test uh, to hopefully get people to change the, the way they're thinking about how we, we exist as humans. Mm. Yeah, well, it's that idea of not thinking that we're superior and realising. And it's, yeah, it's, for, it's to find that way to actually feel that connection and that you are part of that bigger ecosystem because once you feel that, you're not going to start harming the planet because you're, nah. you're part of it. So you, that's it. Yeah, we've it just lost be that. that simple. It is, and we've just 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 you know we've severed our ties with nature. That's the problem. You know, we're mm. more and more on our devices. Our kids, they're born with that, but very quickly they're sort of pulled into the inertia of the system, and and they lose mm. that connection. So, 
how do we expect people to fight for nature or defend it or really understand climate change when they're just not interacting with it? And, you know, you're the same. I live sort of out of a city and I see I see the impacts every day. I see the, the hills across us go brown that haven't been brown for a year or I see how dry mm. the leaves are. So we get that and we totally. talk to our farmers and we know it. But most people in the cities or in our capital cities or in Parliament House just, just have no awareness of that. And I think that's mm. a huge barrier. And I think that's one of the most important things we can do moving forward is to is to is to teach our children to value nature and make sure it's a real priority as parenting. It should be one of the most important things we do because then they will care about it at a deeper level and they'll they'll appreciate it. Um, otherwise, it's just you know they're going to get used to a virtual nature or only seeing animals on billboards or in zoos. And um, as you know, that would be a great shame. That we we've just got to find ways to to reconnect people. So. Can you tell me about your reconnection to nature? Like you said that you used to live in the city and you maybe didn't have that connection. What was that moment, that, that change for you where you found that connection? Uh, I think I always had it from a young age. I just denied it. So I always knew it was there, but I just um, I chose to shut it out and it was easy to do when I was in the city. And plus, I'm as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm, I sort of can – very easily get in my head and love processing things and information and learning new things and when you do that sometimes you can sacrifice just the stillness or the simplicity of nature sometimes i can be intoxicated by learning new things in the system and and sometimes sitting in nature has been a challenge just to be Mm. with myself and so i've had to sort of teach myself that again and be quite disciplined in in bringing that into my daily life and, and forcing myself to even put my hand on a tree or stand with my feet in the soil and yeah, jump in the say, ocean. So what, what is your daily practice of connection? Yeah, well, I try and jump in the water. That's the big thing for me, especially if I've been on a computer or flying. Then all those electromagnetics just to jump in the ocean straight away. Like my wife just goes, oh, my God, like my eyes just pop and I become back. Yeah. And I'm a human again. Yeah. That's right. I think all of us. And then um, lately I've also, um, <laughs> which is quite surreal actually, but, I try and find a tree or a bit of earth and just like take my shoes off and stand in that. And I just had 10 days in New York and I was that guy walking around town, just subtly putting my hand on a tree in the middle of the busy city, <laughs> just trying to, you know, connect in yeah. some way. Cause I just knew that I was just not touching the ground at all. You know what it's like? Mm. It's either concrete or your shoes or you're on your device. And um, I think people underestimate what impact that actually has on them. And I certainly mm. feel that. So um, it doesn't take much, uh, as you know. You can very quickly replenish yourself. So I just try and do that. I don't, I don't succeed every day, and um, um, but I, as much as I can, I just try and touch nature, get involved with it, jump in the water, whatever it is, um, mm. as often as I can. Yeah, oh, it's interesting. I'm just writing an article about that exact thing at the moment. That yeah, mm. we just all need to start doing that a bit more. And some yeah, once we have that connection, that can help. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, so educating girls, like when we're talking about all of these issues, it's often not something that people would think of. So can you explain how that fits into the the picture that you're talking about? Yeah, so the stats from from the UN say that there's about 120 million girls around the world that don't get to complete their education, and that's not just in developing countries, it's also in wealthier nations, and it's for a host of reasons, from uh, religious reasons, to be pulled out for work, um, all sorts of factors. And when that happens, uh, the the statistics show that that girl is likely to have five or more children. 
But if a girl is able to complete her education plus get access to reproductive health services and legitimate work opportunities, then she gets to choose when and how many children she has. Mm -hmm. And that number comes down to two. So what that means is that that's a difference, that having two children versus five or more is a difference of 1.1 billion people by 2050. So obviously Mm -hmm. that has a profound impact on our resource use and thus climate change. Um, So again, it was one of those solutions. I just thought, wow, I mean, this is again, let's do that anyway. Like empowering girls and women is just the thing we need to do right now for a host of reasons. But if we do do it, we also get this bonus that helps the climate and our resources. So you're right. It's just not talked about anywhere near Mm. as much as it should be. And a lot of science should be happening anyway. (laughs) Correct. And, and, um, you know, and I think, you know, you probably saw yesterday, but, you know, the fact that a 34-year-old woman is now going to be the Prime Minister of Finland, she'll be the youngest mm. serving Prime Minister in the world, and she's got a government that's made up of a coalition of five different parties, and all every leader of those five parties is a woman as well. When mm. we shared that, like, just the response that people had was just like, God, this absolute overwhelm and excitement yeah. and hope. Because uh, I think yeah. we all know that balance needs to be restored and that um, there is a, you know, just a desperate need for that. And I, again, what I love by so much, so many of the young climate strikers I've met around the world in the last year, you know, so many of them are 16, 17 year old girls from different countries, not just Greta, but, you know, we've met them from Denmark and Kenya and Ethiopia and Latvia and all these places. And mm. they're just all talking to each other. They're all connecting up. They're all yeah. forming these communities and they are very articulate, powerful young women, and I, I get really excited by that. I just think yeah. that that next leadership that's going to come through is um, is quite exciting. We just have to make sure that we don't drive the bus off the cliff before they get a chance yeah. to get behind the steering, you know. Yeah. So do you find, like, you've been to a lot of different countries talking about this and talking to people, and are there different, do you find different countries have, like I was just thinking when you went to England recently, there a different focus there than what mm. we're talking about here and then in, I mean obviously there is but what are some of those differences <laughs> seeing? well I will say you know that the rest of the world is incredulous to our lack of action that's for sure knowing how vulnerable we are as a country they just cannot believe that level of denial that's coming out of here and why we mm. still want to build, build coal mines I mean it's Mm. Even countries that you could argue need that energy, like India and China, are having these discussions about not building coal mines and trying to shut them down. They just can't understand why a country with so much solar and wind isn't exporting mm. that to the rest of the world. So that certainly comes up a lot. And also, probably the most challenging thing for me as an Australian, because I do love my country, is seeing how far behind the rest of the world we are. And there's just mm. so many incredible initiatives going on that we're just a long way from. Um, I think, you know, even Denmark a couple of days ago pledged to go seven, cut their emissions by 70% over the next 10 years. They're going to introduce a plastic tax. They're going to bring in regen ag. They're going to have policy around decentralising energy. Like that's kind of what leadership can be at a government level. Yeah. Uh, in the UK, obviously, they're still having their own arguments, but they've at least declared a climate emergency. They've acknowledged that it's real. Their nightly news is full of stories about climate change and what we can do about it. Again, something that we just don't get here. We're still too scared to talk about it. Um, one of the young Danish leaders I spoke to said that her government's actually formed a youth climate um, action committee. So it's made up of 18 to 20-year-olds and they inform the, the government on certain decisions and actions they'd like to see that benefit mm. their future. Um, again, <laughs> God, I can't imagine that happening here in the next five years. No. Uh, and, you know, Costa Rica, all these places are just doing extraordinary things. Um 
which is comforting in one way. Like you can really get sucked into thinking that the rest of the world's behaving like Australia, but thankfully there's lots of countries that aren't and lots of regions that aren't. Um, but obviously America and, and, and Australia are the two big laggards and it's it's no accident, I think, that both of them are, have heavily controlled media and, and Rupert Murdoch's played a, a major part in that. Uh, I don't mm. think that's a coincidence and a lot of countries that don't have him manipulating their stories and media uh, have a much more progressive outlook on this topic. So I think we just need to be more savvy about the narrative and the, and the narrative mm. war that we're in right now and who's winning that. And it's certainly people with vested interests have done a very good job at hijacking the storytelling and polluting the environment to really perpetuate these denialist arguments. Uh, and they've mm. done it very And we need to acknowledge that they've been, they've had the money to do it, but they've done a very successful job of it. Well, you've done a very successful job of changing that too and creating your own narrative and changing that story. So try and yeah no worries long way to go and uh yeah need all the help we can get so if anyone is listening you know my favorite quote is from uh, robert swan he said the greatest threat to the planet is is the belief that someone else will save it so totally i certainly don't want to think that i'm the only one doing it there's lots of people doing it you're doing it we we all need to find our own agency at this time and we can't mm. rely on the government to do it i think we're getting that lesson right now is that they're not going to give us the leadership we want. We've just got to find a way to get involved at our work, at our school, in our community. Mm. Just got to join with other people and do it ourselves. And eventually they'll listen to us and we'll reach a tipping point. But we just can't be complacent. There's too much yeah. at stake. And yeah. we really are. We are at the crossroads right now. And I've spoken to enough people now to know that that's true. I do think we can do it. I do still have hope. But I think we're running out of time to act. In fact, we've probably crossed that, that point And we are um, on a downward spiral at the moment. So... More than ever, we need people to roll up their sleeves and get involved. Mm. Yeah, and I think we need to remember that that small action might not change the world, but it will help. So not to Massively. be disem disempowered. And no, and it's the Margaret Mead You know, that's the only way it's ever happened. It's been a passionate group of small individuals, you know, that they've been the one that have created the change. And it's how it happened with the abolitionists. It's how it happened with the suffragettes. It's how it happened with human rights movements. It's always been that way. And we've taught our leaders how to lead on these topics. So now more than ever, mm. we've just got to, got to look to the past like that and the lessons that have been learned and, uh, and get involved. Yeah. So if people want to get involved with 2040 and the projects that you're <laughs> supporting, how can they do that? Uh, well, our website is whatsyour2040.com. So I'd recommend going there and having a look at some of the videos. And then also there's a button there that says activate your plan. And I'd encourage everyone to go and hit that button and answer those questions and see what um, you might be able to do to get involved. We have a really active social media channel. We're constantly putting out, you know, stories of hope and solutions. But also we have a closed Facebook group, which is quite extraordinary in terms of the discussions that go on there and the way mm. people help each other out and provide tips and advice and all sorts of things and comfort each other through this. So that's a very um, engaged community that want change. So I'd recommend that. Um, and it's interesting, once you start doing that um, and seeking out those types of things, that then it just it leads you to more and more people and you start to realise there's a lot more people in the same boat and a lot more people doing great things out there that you just didn't know about. So it's just that mm -hmm. first step um, and let yourself sort of um, begin this new sort of paradigm and new understanding of what's required. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time. Now I'd like to let you go and connect with nature and <laughs> get off the computer. And yeah, work and hug stuff. my baby. Got a four-month-old yeah. baby, so she oh, needs a, a bit more cuddling. She needs dad time. You have been listening to the Pit Podcast with Damon Gamow. 
For more information about the 2040 film and Damon's work, visit www.whatsyour2040.com. Stay tuned for our upcoming PIP Climate Solutions series by signing up to PIP Fortnightly at www.pipmagazine.com.au where you can also explore our other podcasts, articles and subscribe.